Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In our grand vision, it is to make Australia a world leader in these ocean solutions. And you used to feel so much pride as being this, you know, bronzed Australian. The salt water was in our veins and we were revered for how we treated the ocean. We had the Great Barrier Reef, we were this, we were that. And the last few years, we've just been slipping down the scales. Why, with Australia having so much diversity in the ocean landscape, so many incredible institutions and people who understand the ocean, we study our ocean really, really well. We have been coming up with some of these solutions, but quite often they've just been in laboratories and they've never really looked at the commercialization piece. So we are super fired up to say, give more money to these institutions and all these scientists, but let's look at how we can commercialize it and take it to the world. That's environmentalist Tim Silverwood. And this is episode 147 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. I hope you've been keeping well. It's a real pleasure to be here with you again. For those who are joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today's guest is environmentalist Tim Silverwood, who you may recall from the early days of this show. It's actually quite the coincidence. Tim was initially on episode 47, and today's episode is 147. I didn't plan it to be that way. It's just how the chips fell. Tim is the co-founder and former CEO of Take Three, an Australian charity that's dedicated to educating people about the importance of sustainability and reducing marine pollution. And more recently, Tim co-founded Ocean Impact Organization, which you will hear about in this conversation. Quick side note before we jump into things, we recorded this some 10 weeks ago, pre the COVID lockdowns in Bondi. With that said, this is Tim Silverwood. I hope you enjoy it and I'll catch you on the other side. Tim, welcome back. Nice to be back. Mate, I'm I'm pumped. I've been looking forward to having you back for a while. You seem to have been up to some very cool stuff since our last episode. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, how long has it been? But yeah, life has certainly changed from my end and you know, the world has changed. So I'm sure we've got lots to catch up on. I thought, uh, and I know we might sort of cover off on some of the themes we spoke about last episode and then sort of jump into what's changed. But I thought perhaps to start today... We could do it with a sort of rather big but obvious question for you, uh, which is why you are so personally fascinated with the ocean. Like, what is it about the ocean and the marine ecosystems that makes you feel so compelled to protect it? I think it starts with my way of being where I really, you know, I question a lot about humanity. We put ourselves at the center of everything, when we are occupying this remarkable pale blue marble that we call Earth with millions of just incredible living entities that make life function. And so when I look at, I suppose, my passion, which has always been how can we get humans to minimize the impact they're having on the planet, I realized that, you know, the thing that really drives life on this planet, like we happen to occupy the terrestrial landmass and we breathe oxygen and we walk on the earth, but it's the ocean that's at the center of everything. Like I, I provocatively use this terminology now around that we live on planet ocean. Like forget planet earth. Like sure, it's a part of the planet, but it's not the planet. The planet is the ocean. And there's a couple of stats I can share just to really bring that home to people. So... You know, we need 
a healthy atmosphere for our survival. It's this beautiful protective bubble that contains our living space. But that atmosphere actually only represents one five hundredth of the volume of gas that exists in the ocean. So essentially, if you were to compress the atmosphere, which is about 80 kilometres up above us, into a liquid, there would be 500 times more liquid in the ocean. So there's like 500 more atmospheres contained within the ocean. So it's just, it's insane. And the other statistic I've been peddling is that if you just take from the high tide line of the ocean to the top of Mount Everest, so all that landmass, which is obviously where we call home, that's one eleventh of the volume of the ocean. So it's just, we have to start looking at our planet through the eyes of the ocean because in doing so, we can truly start to understand what it's going to take to maintain this beautiful stasis of a healthy planet. If we don't, the ocean will reign supreme into the future, but we will have a really tough time. Yeah, that's that's a big question in and of itself. The planetary health and climate change, is it about the planet's health or is it more about the human's health and our existence? It totally is about us. I mean, if we care about the fact that we evolved over these millions of years to create this remarkable being that is Homo sapiens, I mean, we're phenomenal, but we're kind of dumb because we are just heading ourselves towards a brick wall at the moment. Like, if we are talking about protecting the planet for anyone, it's about us. Did you watch the lunar eclipse the other night? How humbling was that? I mean, that just puts things into perspective, right? So As does. to just how miraculous just life is in general. Exactly. And when I sat there looking up, I just, I felt my descendants. And, you know, it happened to happen during Reconciliation Week in Australia and on Sorry Day, so a day when we really need to look back at the impact we've had on our Indigenous cultures and to look up and realise that, you know, all this DNA contained within me, beings for millennia and millions of years have probably looked up at similar astrological events and just been in the same state of awe. You mentioned the Indigenous peoples there and rightly so, that's become a more prominent conversation of late. When you think of ocean conservation, and I guess the voice from Indigenous people and them being a part of that conversation, what can we learn from their way of life and their wisdom in terms of bettering the way that we are thinking about the ocean and bettering how we're treating it? Oh, so much. At the end of the day, I think what environmentalists are seeking is that humans can become custodians of the planet. It's pretty simple. It's what we always have been, but it really only feels like the last few hundred years since the Industrial Revolution and how it's just gone into absolute overdrive in the last few decades or, you know, since the 1940s. We've just got so detached from that custodianship. So it's absolutely essential that we, we listen to Indigenous cultures and Indigenous perspectives and just do everything we can to, to percolate that knowledge and to translate it into some new ways of thinking and doing because, you know, not only are we um, doing conservation wrong in so many ways, we're also being ignorant to these cultures, we're excluding voices and it all needs to change. And I, I agree, I think there's definitely been a big push in the last few years to, to start to embrace that, but we've got so much further to go. Yeah, there's a, a difference between the awareness and having the conversation, but then actually having them involved in the conversation and seeing that through from an action point of view kind of remains to be seen. But I'm hopeful that that's a, a big part of the future because it does seem like something that has been missing. And I think we can learn a lot from them in terms of what sustainability means and what regeneration means and also just a way of living it. What do you think about the way that our economy is set up and the consumerism? Do we need to look at the way we're consuming? Because some people will say, look, the sustainability issues we're seeing is just built on our growth and, you know, 9, 10, 11 billion people and the way we're living. Do we need to really address at a sort of core level how we live? I'd like to hope so. And I think that maybe what will transpire and probably it even mirrors my journey a little bit is that one end of the spectrum, a certain part of the bell curve will embrace a really tactile way of living that is directly 
in line with their values, but that's never always going to work for the masses, right? You're always going to have this big bulk in the middle and you're going to have the outliers at the other end that are just going to be really reluctant to change. So I truly believe that the outliers that do embrace this really values-driven way of living, not only do they show it's possible, they inspire others and they take up an increasing part of the market share. So they do send so much inspiration to the others to create that change. And in many ways, you know, that's the sort of work I'm doing now where I went from being quite deep green eco with all this very radical opinion and way of living around plastics and and low waste. But now I've found myself really trying to tackle that pragmatic middle ground where it's like, well, we are stuck with capitalism. Like it's going to be here in this current shape for a while to come. It is having the greatest impact of all because it is sustaining that huge bulk in the middle of the bell curve. How can we just make slight adjustments to really minimise the external harm that it's causing there? How can we just do business better? So I've gone from sort of being like, you know, placard waving, sustainability is everything, like be radical to being more like, well, imagine if sustainability was profitability. Imagine if we really could start to tackle the systems and just make them a little bit more sustainable. The impact is actually far greater than just getting a few outliers to go radical. I agree. And that's my same approach with food. Perfection does become the enemy of good. And we're far better off with all of these issues having billions of people doing it imperfectly and making small changes than a tiny, tiny percentage of the world doing it perfectly, right? But as you say, sometimes at the start of advocacy, you can get caught up in perfection. Yeah, but I think you've got to recognize that there's immense value in that, but you've also got to kind of, at some point, take the blinkers off. And for me, I mean, it was probably a good five, six years of like I had the blinkers on. Like I was just, I look back at clips. I had to give some footage to a documentary recently and I was going back through some of my archive clips and like I am just so full on like with my with my activism. But I think I just was compelled because no one else was talking about it. So I felt that direct call to arms like, Tim, it's got to be you. Now when I look back at particularly that transition out of Take 3 for the C, it's like, well, I don't need to be that guy anymore because there's tens of thousands of Tims doing it in their own way in different parts of the world. So that sort of diluted my call to arms and allowed me to look and say, well, where's the next, where's the next bit that needs Tim? And so I do want to get to the solutions and what you're talking about. It sounds like what you're getting at is how can we change the way of doing business, which means that that big section of the population are living more sustainably, but really they don't even have to give it too much thought. Exactly. And it's just still easy and convenient for them. They just happen to be lowering their environmental footprint. Exactly right. With a focus on the ocean. Let's get into that in a little bit. But the lassophile, I came across this word through your content. Yeah. Some people may have never heard of that word. I hadn't heard of it. Can you tell me about that word? Yeah, it's uh, simply a, a person who loves the ocean. So I'm certainly one and I reckon you are too and probably a fair few of our listeners are. The ocean is in all of us if you want to get deep. I mean, life get deep. began in the ocean. It began in the depths of the ocean. And as we were talking about before, it's where life will continue long after humanity has done its dues on this planet. So yeah, I'm just incredibly attracted to the ocean, just being around it, being on it, being under it obviously riding it when you get the chance to ride these incredible swells as a surfer. So I embrace that wholeheartedly. And it naturally then means that, you know, my whole journey began as a human who just looked at the ocean that I loved so dearly and saw the way that humanity was treating it and thought, well, that's not good enough. Like, what can I do to influence it for us to treat it better? So that's really where it all began. So for you, that was a sort of product of growing up, being immersed in nature, right? And and because you were immersed with it, you felt the need to want to protect it. And younger generation seems to really be speaking about this, at least in certain populations. But do you feel like it's actually within us when we're born? And in many ways, if we're sort of removed from the natural world environment, we can lose our connection with nature? Yeah. Obviously, being able to go out in nature, you sort of start to quickly realise your place in the bigger scheme. There's nothing quite like going into the open ocean and being incredibly vulnerable, like tackling your fears and being somewhere where you kind of, your species isn't really meant to be. Like we, we can play in the fringes of the ocean, but going out into the actual open ocean, like we didn't evolve doing that. 
So yeah, I think you really start to create this incredible respect for it, this love for it, and that naturally then translates to wanting to protect what you love. How do you think we're going since the last conversation we had? And that was more centered, I guess, around plastics. So maybe we start there and then we can sort of branch out. But how do you think we're going as a species and how has the conversation sort of progressed or things progressed since our last conversation? Yeah, I'd I'd love to give us a glowing A+, but I don't think we're getting one of those. You know, I'm really impressed that, again, the narrative is always evolving and so again, a portion of the population are really sort of getting it now. And that's wonderful. I love seeing the next generation and just their sort of no holds barred approach. And even like seasoned environmentalists like Tim Flannery used to be very much touching the edges. And now he's just like, no, no, you are stealing from my kid's future now. Like, so so that narrative just like, and we've got to go there. Let's get serious. Let's get serious. Like, let's not just beat around the bush. But on the plastics front, obviously, I don't know there's a huge amount of data, there may be, but from just my perspective as someone who's been immersed in this issue for 12, 13 years, I'm a bit alarmed at how quickly we've really, particularly in advanced economies like Australia and elsewhere in the world, we've just sort of, we've fallen back in love with plastic a little bit, you know, in terms of the pandemic and how we just had to grasp onto everything and anything to allow us to live in this safe bubble it kind of makes you realise plastic creates a pretty good bubble around things. It's the face masks you put on, it's the disposability, it's the gloves, it's the sanitizer. Like we've really, you know, and, and this is a big thing to sort of consider. Like a lot of people out there will say, oh, we need to get rid of plastics. You know, they're so bad. Can you imagine how it would be to try and deal with a global pandemic without plastic? we'd be in a bad state. So suddenly I think we've got back to this sort of conversation, I guess it's the narrative at the moment, What is that pragmatism? How do we greatly reduce the amount of plastic which is leaking into the environment? Because that's really what we want to avoid, right? The leakage is what causes the plasticized seas and rivers and waterways and devastates wildlife. How do we stop the leakage? What is our relationship moving forward? How do we talk about the simple fact that we've got to stop extracting fossil fuels from the planet because that's what's causing global warming and this climate crisis. But at the same time, the same oil and fossil fuel and gas is being pumped out to become these new generation of plastics. There's a big conversation to be had about the kind of future we want to see in respect to our relationship with this stuff. So what does that look like from a plastics point of view? You're sort of speaking to that plastics in many respects are needed, some plastics, but what we're trying to aim to do here is to limit the amount that are ending up in the ocean. We're not doing such a great job of that and historically we haven't. Are the answers to this problem in changes in legislation? Is it innovation and finding ways to better capture the plastic before it has a chance of getting to the ocean? Like, What does that look like? It's all of those, but I think the simplest way and the one I'd like to sort of champion is the circular economy, right? There's this great concept which has been in nature forever and ever, which is that there really is no such thing as waste in nature. Everything remains in these perpetual cycles. And so for quite a few years now, there's been people, they spoke about cradle to cradle design, and now there's a huge thing around the circular economy, really spearheaded by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. But just basically says, if you're going to go to the effort of extracting all these virgin resources from the planet, Don't allow them just to have one cycle. Don't just expect they're going to go and get burnt at the end of their life or dumped in a landfill or dumped in the ocean. We have to start thinking about those cycles. So the fact that we've already bring something like 300 million plus tonnes of new plastic onto the market every year, surely we can imagine a future where we don't have to extract the fossil fuels because there's already enough of this plastic circulating around to be recaptured, reprocessed, back in, and it could even be used with renewable energy. So you can actually imagine a circular system. The challenge is that we just haven't really been putting that at the front in terms of the way we design products, which is obviously driven by legislation and and corporate behaviour and attitude. So if we were to redesign the way we interact with this material, get much better at, you know, reprocessing, dismantling, reconstructing materials, I could imagine a future where we still have petroleum-based plastics, but we just we're not dumb enough to go and bury it in the ground or burn it after the end of its life. Yeah, and I've seen some brands recently with their packaging announcing that they're using a recycled plastic 
as their packaging for a supplement or whatnot. Is that more sustainable than using glass? Is that something you've looked at? It just depends on the main measure you're putting on it. So from a carbon perspective, you know, if that glass is being shipped across the world, you know, it might have a much larger carbon footprint than a plastic product. What I've always said around plastic and felt particularly necessary in those early years of my activism is all this life cycle assessment, all this analysis that we put on it and say, hey, paper's worse than plastic or glass is worse than plastic. It never factored in the what if it got into the ocean. What is the value of that hawksbill turtle that just consumed that plastic and died or that dolphin or that whale? We never put that externality on it. And that was annoying to me because it's like, well, we can't just talk about it in the carbon footprint perspective. We've got to look at it in the fact that we're plasticizing the sea and killing all these innocent creatures. So it depends what lens you put on it. But, um, you know, I think the idea of recycled plastic content is a wonderful first step because the flip side is if you're making a product and you're using a virgin plastic, then you're kind of supporting more fossil fuel extraction. I suppose where it gets really interesting is then around the health side of things, which, you know, we can, we can talk about. But there's increasing evidence now about just how much plastic we're allowing into our body through the air that we breathe and the products that we consume and I think that's going to get really interesting in the future because maybe the science is going to get more clear on what that does to us. Maybe people are just going to start to go, you know what, I don't particularly like that I'm consuming a credit card's worth of plastic every week. Thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's probably more science to come, but there are early indications it can affect the endocrine system and, and hormones and Fertility. Whatnot. Yeah. I'm wondering, with your stance on plastic, have you had any discussions with someone who takes a more hardline approach to plastic, sort of a zero plastic tolerance type approach and and in such a conversation, how do you go about having healthy discourse or where does that tend to go? Yeah, I'm definitely, I think since stepping away from take three for the C and, and sort of going more into this, hey, business can be good, conscious capitalism, I've definitely copped a little bit of little bit of flack, but you know, I'm still the same person with the same vision for the future. So I just try and be, you know, anti-inflammatory and uh, you've got to be very efficient with your energy in this game and so I don't really get bogged yeah. down in the weeds with this stuff. Pick your battles. Pick your battles, mate. Yeah. <laughs> no, I feel you there. On the topic of plastics, Seaspiracy, mm. you've probably seen it, no doubt. I think we yeah, spoke about it. Yeah, I think we um, yeah, watched it basically the day it was released. Yeah. Top line, what are your thoughts? I love that it's the film that brings the terrible impacts we're putting on the ocean to the mainstream. And that to me is, you know, whatever criticisms might flow behind that, I love that the film exists because my whole game has been about bringing what is out of sight and out of mind into people's living rooms or schools, you know. So I love that. But of course, there's just some unfortunate side effects where yeah, the sensationalistic approach has definitely disgruntled a few seasoned pros in the environment field, which is not great. And probably the other big one is that, yeah, that sort of lack of looking at Indigenous cultures and developing communities and how, you know, the relationships that us privileged folk have with the ocean and with seafood is very different to what some underprivileged communities have with the ocean because if they don't get to fish, then they don't live. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, maybe let's dig into that a tiny bit. I think there certainly has been a number of criticisms and I've kind of listened to to both sides on all of it and it is incredibly complex. And as you say, like I think in a 90-minute documentary, it's kind of you have to take a little bit of the hysteria side in order for it to go viral, so to speak, and to rank highly on Netflix. So the sensationalism aspect needs to be there, I guess, for a successful documentary. Exactly, it works. What I'm wondering is a couple of things. Firstly, some of the criticisms around the plastic side in the documentary have been around minimizing single-use plastic a little bit in the messaging and perhaps more trying to sort of overstate the impact of fishing in terms of plastic contribution to the ocean. I mean, my point of view is that neither really should minimize the other, they're both probably important to talk about. But I mean, where do you sort of sit on that? Yeah, I can see why they took the angle of wanting to focus on the fishing-related plastic pollution because that probably has been minimised a lot as a result of the focus on the mass. 
But, you know, I mentioned before that it's over 300 million tonnes of new plastic being produced every year. A very small percentage of that would be going into the fishing-related items. So I get it. I get that there needs to be a, a spotlight shone on the fishing-related debris because it is horrific. You know, at the end of the day, ghost nets and abandoned gear not only are they designed to be so tough, so resilient, so of course they're going to last a really long time, they're also designed to catch and kill marine creatures. So when they become debris, they are just horrific. We've all seen them, right? We've all seen the impacts of them. So it needs to be one of the many pillars that we tackle when we're talking about plastic pollution. But when you're dealing with a plastics industry that wants to double its output in the next couple of decades... They want nothing more than us to start not talking about the plastic straws and the coffee cups and the plastic bottles. They would love us to see a focus on fishing debris. So we've got to be really careful to let anything harm the momentum that we've been building around the ridiculously vast quantity of plastic that we're consuming and how much of it is going into single-use applications. And on the indigenous populations and sort of coastal populations, a lot of them rely on fishing for nutritional adequacy. 20% of their daily protein intake is coming from fish for 3 billion people across the world. And I think there was one little segment potentially in the documentary. I've only seen it one, one and a half times where they looked at the African population and showed they were having to go a lot further out to sea. So what's the answer to that? Because it seems like, at least from what I've read and what was portrayed in this documentary, that the sort of deep sea trawling, these big operations are taking a lot of fish out of the ocean and it is affecting the coastal regions. At the same time, that trawling seems to be releasing a lot of carbon that has been stored in the ocean floor. Am I understanding that correctly? What's your stance in terms of protecting these coastal populations so that they do have fish and can access it in a safe manner? What changes need to take place? I think that the overarching message there in the film, and I completely agree with it, is that this industrialization of the sea, industrial scale fishing, it is the scourge of our time. And to think that so many people around the world, probably mostly in more developed communities, are just consuming this protein with no idea of how it was harvested. And the harvesting story, if you were to follow the trail, it might have started with smaller scale operations, maybe even in some of these developing communities where they were catching enough to feed themselves, but then they were selling it onto the market. And it's followed that capitalism curve where it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it's just become monstrous. And so what we're seeing now is just these operations, the scale of which are just devastating. And in many cases, those fleets are going and working in, you know, these communities perhaps are selling licenses for these big industrial scale fishing operations to come in and take the biomass that would have been available for these developing communities. So it's kind of like anything, like it just feels that humanity really doesn't do things at massive scale well. Whenever you go to a large scale, it starts to crumble. And that is so, so true of the way we fish the oceans. So what does this look like on a practical level? Like if someone's listening and they're here in Australia and they live in a developed country and they have great food access, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the planetary health diet out of Eat Lancet. That was a 2019 paper and they, they had 30 scientists and food systems experts, part of the Lancet journal, that came together to form this commission and they said by 2050 there'll be 10 or 11 billion people what diet can we recommend that will be healthy but also sustainable and that can scale up to feed that many people? And they came up with this diet, which was plant predominant, but there are animal products certainly in there. And fish was around zero to 100 grams per day, which was around 40 calories a day, which is not much. It's like 280 calories a week is what they were recommending in that. But I'm interested from your point of view, like if you're an Australian and you're in this developed country, you've seen what's happening with sea spiracy, and you don't want to buy into the commercial industrial fishing. 
you've got a couple options. One, not eat fish or two, try and really work out where it's coming from, right? And it seemed, again, this is how it's being portrayed in the documentary that the certifications, some of them are a little tricky to work out. Like, is it truly sustainable? Is it not? Like, how does someone navigate this space? It's exactly right. So it's either don't eat fish or the onus is on you to basically try and figure out a pathway to get that protein without the negative consequences to the planet. The certification systems, I know that they got pretty drilled in the film and and maybe rightly so. I don't know a lot about that particular case, but certification systems will always go a long way to improving the status quo because you've got a, a cluster of people that are essentially having to adhere to some guidelines. Sure, there could be a bit of greyness to that sort of stuff. But hey, if we're vigilant and we go and make those phone calls to those certification bodies, then they're going to up their game. But the problem with a place like Australia is that, you know, we are reported to have a pretty well-managed wild fisheries programs, you know, whether you like the sound of that or not. But it's something like 70% of the seafood that's consumed in this nation is imported. So you can bet that there's people out there today who are listening to this podcast, probably not this podcast, but other podcasts who might be going and getting fish off the menu and they're just, again, they're externalising. They don't want to go there. They do not want to even think about where that came from. But chances are, unless it's sort of from a place which prides themselves on their sustainability, it could be imported, which means it's either in some sort of aquaculture setup where it probably isn't that good for the environment Local communities, sure, there might be employment opportunities. Maybe they took mangroves away. Maybe they're using ridiculous, you know, antibiotics and various things to kind of they're feeding them. Like there is always. Did you read uh, Toxic? Have you seen that book? I've got it on my bookshelf at the moment. I'm I'm starting to get stuck in. That's a big one. Like Australia's got this love affair with their Tasmanian salmon, and we've again we haven't thought about what the hell is behind this scaled industry. I started reading it and I'd really want to get Richard on the show at some point, but I was reading one part and you would think on sort of face value, farmed fishing, it's, it seems like it would be more sustainable than going out into the big oceans and just taking wild fish, right? But what he's describing in there around what they're being fed because salmon are carnivorous fish and they've been fed like anchovies and sardines and and a lot of these have come from areas of Africa and Peru and it goes back to affecting those coastal towns by taking the small fish out of the food chain and then it's affecting their ecosystem and their supply. So there's there's a lot to consider here. Oh my gosh, there's so much to consider and wouldn't you just love that if humans were better at when we're sitting down, those that do, to eat that piece of salmon would actually look at that story that's behind that little bit of flesh that they're about to put into their body. I think the one that's really going to get people startled about the whole Tasmanian salmon, there's a lot of environmental impacts, but on the Four Corners episode that uh, looked into it just this year as well, it basically showed the salmon farmers getting almost like a Pantone colour chart and they can essentially choose what colour they want the salmon to look like and that's essentially an artificial additive that they put into the feed that creates that colour because otherwise they'd be grey, a white grey flesh. That's not going to be very appealing. I don't think so. If you order the salmon at the restaurant, it comes out and it's grey. Yeah, and remember that ocean trout is salmon because that's the one that people like to sort of just externalise again that it's actually... Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Ocean, ocean trout, trout is salmon. It's quite often it's going to be that same Tasmanian salmon that's just getting marketed in a different way. There you go. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. You said 70% of fish in Australia is imported. So the majority of fish, do you think, just at restaurants, if it's on the menu where it's from, that's likely to be imported fish? Yeah, and particularly things like the shrimp and prawn, that's all you know coming from Southeast Asian prawn farms, a lot of the squid, all that stuff, but mostly the stuff that's at that larger scale. Like if you're going into a, 
a regional community in Australia and, and ordering, you know, fish from the fish and chip shop, you know, there's probably a chance there is a local industry that's feeding into that. And certainly there'd be markets for fish to move around Australia, but the stuff that's at that really commercial high end, like I'm sure what's in a, you know, McDonald's fill of the fish is, is, is going to be imported, all that crumbed stuff that gets sold in supermarkets. Yeah, it might sound weird me asking these questions, but there are a number of people on this show that are, you know, they eat a plant predominant diet and they have some seafood in their diet. So I want people to sort of understand some of the nuance and and tips to at least look into it a little bit more. From what I've come across, bivalves seem to be one of the more sustainable types of seafood or at least farmed bivalves. Have you have you heard that? Yeah, particularly mussels and oysters and things like that. I think that there used to be some pretty bad practices around scallop farming. I know that particularly because I had a chap on my podcast recently, Sam Elsom, who's got this seaweed farm down in Tasmania called Sea Forest. He's growing asparagopsis seaweed to feed cattle to reduce methane. But the lease that he's got down there, a huge marine lease, used to be a scallop lease where they used to basically, I suppose propagate the scallops into the seabed and then just scour it to like almost like you're harvesting potatoes. And then it moved to a mussel lease, which the, the mussels are all grown on lines. And the thing about bivalves is they they basically purify the water. So the consequences of that are that, you know, if you're growing those bivalves in an estuary that has toxic fertilisers and pesticides being used in the catchment, that can get into the flesh and heavy metals and increasingly plastic. But at the same time, they are purifying the water. So if you're happy to eat that purified flesh, then go for it. Yeah. I'm still trying to find someone who perhaps is in the farming of bivalves to be able to sit down with them. So if you come across anyone. Yeah. There's a chap down on um, South Coast. Um, yeah, I can make an intro. Yeah, let me know. Smart Oysters, they're a tech, um, tech startup that are using some great software to really get good, rapid water quality assessment to know how to manage their, yeah. their bivalves. Because I've done some reading and, and had a few people send me a few articles suggesting that they're actually being introduced into areas to help regenerate. It's not only about the food supply aspect, but also improving the ecosystem, which is interesting. Is there something, it's actually only come as news from my, my wife, but something around oysters and being incorporated into some plant-based? Like I think there issues? are, uh, you know, some I actually people? wrote about it in my book. There is a term brought to my attention called Austro-Vegan uh, while I was writing the book, actually. So there would be some, I think, plant-exclusive style people that would eat oysters or mussels because they don't have a central nervous system and science suggests they can't feel pain. So not a bad idea if someone is looking for a few specific micronutrients and isn't taking a multivitamin or something like that, like B12 or iodine or uh, omega-3s. Yeah, possibly regenerating a natural system and obviously, yeah, that whole... Yeah, the regeneration piece is what I found very interesting because I was like, okay, so it depends on someone's definition of vegan, right? This is where it gets really interesting because I kind of just put the information out and, and people can make whatever choice feels right for them. But someone's definition of vegan could be excluding all animal products, whereas someone else is to minimize suffering as far as practically possible. And so if you were the former, then you probably wouldn't consider eating oysters. If you were the latter, then perhaps you wouldn't have an issue with it. And as you say, if it is regenerating an ecosystem, then there could be an added benefit from including it in your diet. But yeah, that's a that's a big conversation in and of itself. Can I, um, I did a permaculture course a couple of years ago and amazing. I absolutely loved immersing myself in the 12 permaculture principles and just could totally see how, wow, if humanity lived in this way, there would be harmony with the biosphere. But the one that really got me and, and my wife as well is that if you were dear to these permaculture principles and say you came across fresh roadkill, like you're almost obliged to consume it because here is this living protein, you know, this protein that has, has succumbed and it's like, okay, well, we don't create waste. As a permie, we, we exclude every concept of waste and here's this. Yeah, I mean, that's as as sustainable, I guess, as it gets almost. Um, <laughs> anyway, we can leave that one there. That's a, yeah, that's a different idea. But I've heard that come up before. I've actually, I've heard certain, I've listened to some sort of philosophical debates and that often comes up in a vegan debate. Would you eat it if it was roadkill? It's an interesting question. Corey Hancock, do you know him? 
Is he in, the environmental yeah, cowboy? Yeah. I haven't met him yet, but he, yeah. he's a fascinating chap. No, I had him on it, um, a couple of weeks ago now, but he was talking about the algae that you just brought oh, up. Yeah. yeah, he's right into that as well. Take three for the sea before we move on to what you're doing now. You're still involved, but you've kind of stepped back a little. Yeah, this is really at the crux of it. So, you know, I built the organization with my co-founders over 10 years and probably in that last two years, it was already forecasting that a next maneuver would come. What would it look like? And so ended up, you know, making that known to my co-founders and board of directors and we appointed a new CEO, which gave me the chance to to step aside into an ambassador role. Obviously, always proud to wear that badge that says I'm one of the co-founders of what I, you know, consider a fantastic organisation doing great work. But um, new CEO, Sarah Beard, absolutely smashing it and has enabled me to go away and start a brand new non-profit organization, which is probably the point you can call me a little bit crazy because <laughs> <laughs> some people won't even do it once in their life, let alone doing it twice. Okay. And before we jump into that, if someone listening didn't catch our last episode, is not familiar with Take 3, can you give a bit of a synopsis and perhaps how someone could get involved? Yeah, sure. So it started back in 2009 when the problem of plastic pollution was really just emerging. And so myself, Amanda and Roberta, got behind this idea of, hey, imagine if everyone could at least just take three pieces of plastic with them when they left a beach or a park or a waterfall or wherever you go. Just get everyone involved in doing something small, which is so timely. And what it did, I suppose, is not only did it inspire people to get physically engaged with conservation quite often for the first time and was a bit of a gateway drug to further involvement, but it's a spread awareness. And so it was incredible. We just got relentless going out to schools. We've had over 500,000 students participate in our schools program. They run cleanups. They do all sorts of great campaigns, big focus on Indigenous communities as well. So just check out Take Three for the Sea and you'll absolutely love it. And it's so simple to get involved because it's just picking up trash and maybe ideally taking a photograph and tagging Take Three for the Sea and showing your community that you're willing to be part of the solution. I love it. And it's inspiring for someone who's thinking about a non-for-profit or trying to create a movement. Like the, the beauty of what you did there is the simplicity. That's it. Right. The barrier to entry is low. So true. And also it's something that people can do, you know, they can just get involved all around the world. That's it. And at any and age. They do. Any age, yeah. So there's a nice learning in there, even above what the actual organization and the mission is. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of One Wave. Have you, yeah. you know, One Wave, Grant? Yeah, Grant, yeah. Yeah. Similar concept, very simple, you yeah. know, and again, ocean oriented. That's it. And engaging visually as well, which helps when you're in this, you know, media driven landscape to have something which is really catchy for people to understand. Let's talk ocean impact organization. Yeah. Is that uh, OIO? Is that the, the That's abbreviation? It. That's it. I guess we need to, it's actually I mean, that last point in the conversation is so apt because I've gone from the most simple translatable message to something <laughs> which is actually pretty darn convoluted. Yeah, so, let's break it down. Yeah, so OIO, so we're a nonprofit, but essentially our role is to help people start, grow, and invest in businesses that are positively impacting the ocean. So right back to that narrative at the beginning, it's saying, well, should we really tolerate businesses that are causing undue harm on the planet, on people, on places? No, like we need, if we're going to get this right, we need businesses to be good, driven by great values and ideally doing regenerative style practices or at least causing neutral harm. So what we are is a, we're like a startup accelerator for businesses that are helping the ocean. So we attract innovators and entrepreneurs, predominantly at earlier stage startups, who've got either a workable model or a great idea of how they can improve the way we treat the ocean, increase the health of the ocean, and we basically are trying to create a space to give them all the resources and ultimately the investment they need to scale. Because when they succeed, the ocean's better off. And importantly, it influences perhaps the businesses that are causing harm to do better because they're seeing that a percentage of their market is being consumed by these good businesses. So it really fires me up. I think of it almost in the context of Tate 3, like we were quite forward thinking back then. It was a bit of a a fringe issue that people didn't know about. And I think the fact that we're focused on oceans and the fact that we're focused on good business, it's exactly where things are heading. 
So I get excited about it. Yeah, I can see it on your face. <laughs> and I know one of the 2020 sort of initiatives was the Pitch Fest, mm. right? And I'll let you explain it. Talk me through what the Pitch Fest was and the cool sort of business ideas and concepts that you've seen that are really lighting you up. And then maybe we dive into what the winners are up to. So I say that we're a startup accelerator. We haven't established the accelerator program yet. That's what we'll do when we've got to our full funding. So our first, because we only launched in February 2020, our first initiative was to say, right, here we are, we're on the scene, check us out. If you are one of these startups or entrepreneurs that are working on a business that's helping the ocean, then we want to hear about you. So we ran this campaign called the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2020, and all people had to do, we're running it again this year in August, all you have to do is basically fill out a form and then send us a three-minute video of you pitching your business solution to help the ocean. And some of these are just like concept ideas. They haven't really even started. That's right. So naturally, you're going to get a full spectrum and we want to see that spectrum. But ultimately, the idea and the judging criteria was driven towards, okay, well, show us that you've got a working model, show us that you've got revenue, you've got the team because you're basically in the hot seat to accelerate. But we still want to get the earlier stage ones too because in the next year, they're going to be further advanced. So the campaign was a success, even though we had limited resources. We had 200 applicants from 38 countries. And at the end, we were able to shortlist these dozen businesses, these startups that we thought were really representative of what we call ocean impact. So the winner was a Sydney-based packaging company called Planet Protector Packaging. Their mission is to eliminate polystyrene, and they do that through an innovative approach to packaging. Second place was a Tasmanian business called Waveswell Energy, who figured out a remarkable biomimicry-inspired innovation that resembles a blowhole, right? When you see a blowhole in the ocean and that incredible energy which is you know, driven by the ocean to create that spraying salty water, they're creating energy using a similar way. So they create a cavity in this floating vessel and as the vessel bobs up and down in the waves, it spins a turbine to create energy. So this is potentially a solution to reduce the amount of coal that's being burned and and to reduce fossil fuels and to sort of add into all the other forms of renewable energy? Yeah, but predominantly for remote communities because a lot of island nations or remote coastlines, they'll have generators, so diesel generators. So you've got a huge environmental footprint associated with transporting the diesel to these locations and then you have obviously the carbon pollution once you're burning it. So they can just go and set up one of these things and it'll just generate renewable energy for a remote community. Might end up having a pretty big role like in offshore aquaculture, even offshore permaculture. So growing seaweed out in the ocean, you're going to need energy. So imagine one of these things bobbing around, creating constant energy for your offshore project. So yeah, remarkable. And so is there, and this is a very green, naive question I'm asking here, is there any impact of producing that energy from the ocean on the ocean itself? Is that like a question that has come up? No, not really. I mean, they've got some future plans about looking at how they can incorporate a model to prevent coastal erosion because coastal erosion is going to be a huge thing as the climate crisis unfolds. So they're looking at how they could put these generators as almost break walls. There might be some environmental impact associated with that. But no, it's essentially like a ferry. It's like a, it's like a Sydney-style ferry that just bobs on the ocean and just passively creates energy. Takes the energy out of the waves. Yeah. It's just basically the air displacement. So if you could imagine like a ferry that had a big cavity in the middle, and interestingly, it's, they call it the uniwave. So it's not looking to generate energy as the air spits up like a blowhole would. It's actually when the air sucks down. So when the boat basically goes up and down, they'll use the turbine to, to create energy from that. So it's really remarkable. And they've got a working prototype down now at uh, King Island. And King Island's already smashing it with renewable energy. They've got a huge wind project down there and solar. So now King Island can boast having three types of renewable energy. Amazing. So they came second. That was Wave, wave Swell energy. energy. And they were another Australian. They were another Australian. Yeah. And then third place was a UK startup called Arc Marine, established by some really passionate divers who wanted to increase marine biodiversity in the coast of Cornwall where, you know, fishing predominantly had just decimated the biodiversity. And so they were thinking initially they wanted to sink a ship, like artificial reefs are fantastic when old vessels are sunk. 
realised there was a lot of negative environmental consequences. So I came up with a carbon neutral recycled concrete cube that has a cavity inside it. And they can then basically create this artificial reef, which just enhances biodiversity. But that's all well and good. That sounds like a very bespoke kind of maybe a tourism opportunity, right? They could sell those. But if you're a startup that wants to scale rapidly, where's your market going to be? Their market is looking like going into offshore wind turbines because when those turbines go down, you have to protect them. So you've got to protect them from scouring. So instead of just throwing down their, you know, highly carbon intensive concrete, which it would normally be, you can put the reef cubes down there and increase biodiversity whilst solving a problem. So that's the kind of stuff Very we cool. want to, yeah, no, that's exciting so that's stuff. the top three. What other ideas or innovations did you see and you were like, wow, this is, like, you know, maybe some of those ones that you thought a bit early, but the, I'm going to watch this. Yeah, look, we had a lot of stuff on seaweed. Everyone's excited about seaweed at the moment just because it sequesters so much carbon and the ocean is getting hugely acidic now, which is affecting marine life. It's warming up. So anything that can draw down carbon or replace, you know, human foods with algae and seaweed, a lot of that, a lot of stuff on coral reefs. In fact, one of the finalists was Coral Vita, who are based in the Bahamas, and they sell reef restoration as a service. So there's probably lots of science communities and conservation groups out there that are trying to find ways of rehabilitating coral reefs. But these guys are doing it as a service. They're saying, you know, there's all these places around the world where tourism is so focused on having a healthy reef, but the reefs are dying. So how about we come in and actually offer a reef restoration service? So a really novel approach again. There's a really fascinating one about sea urchins. I wonder if they classify in the same non-sentient thing as oysters, but sea urchins are decimating seaweed populations, particularly around the east coast of Australia. They basically get in and they just eat all the seaweed, never get a chance for the seaweed to regrow back because it's just they're voracious feeders. So their Is whole that a concept, food chain issue? Is there more sea urchins because of you know, some sort of predator-prey problem relationship? There is in some instances, but a lot of it is just related to warming waters and new species being able to go into new territories because of the changing ocean climate. You know, they're a delicacy in some cultures. Uni, uni is what they're called. So basically they're saying, well, our solution is to encourage people to go and take out the sea urchin and then we've got a proprietary aquaculture system where this feed will plump them up to become a really high-end delicacy and then you sell on to this. So you end up creating a big market for people to start eating sea urchins, which would then minimise the harm they're causing in the ocean. What else did we have in there? We had a company that you so wouldn't think about as being an ocean impact company, but they extract the fats, oils and greases from commercial kitchens, which is just a normal industry. You see the trucks driving around, you know. These yeah, it's people a grease are, trap. It's a grease trap. Company, yeah. And then they realise, well, actually, we're an ocean impact company because when that doesn't get serviced properly, that fats, oils and greases goes into the ocean and causes all this incredible harm. And they're also a circular economy because they recycle those fats, oils and greases into renewable energy fuel. So really, really interesting mix of businesses there. They're all on our website. Go and take a look. And we can't wait to see the kinds of talent that uh, emerges when we do Pitchfest 21. So that's August. August, yeah. Yeah, cool. And uh, what was the 1,000 ocean startup thing that I, I saw on social? My co-founder at OIO, Nick Shirelli, he sort of had the vision for OIO. He's a chartered accountant and has spent a lot of time working in startup culture and passionate diver and conservationist. So I sort of figured out there must be a way where he can marry his skills and passion together. And so he came up with the idea and it seems to me that there's a bit of that synergy emerging around the world because there's a bunch of other existing and new incubators, accelerators, these little innovation ecosystems that are all forming to say, hey, we had these tech accelerators, we've got all these different sort of industry-specific accelerators, let's do it for the ocean. And so now we've basically set up a collaboration. So together with a whole range of partners around the world, we just this week launched at a huge summit in Paris called Change Now. We launched the 1,000 Ocean Startups Initiative to say, hey, collectively, our mission is to accelerate a 1,000 startups in 10 years and in doing so, shift huge amounts of capital into these regenerative and restorative businesses. It's very cool. Hey, friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. 
Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. You said before that having these startups come in and accelerate, that's providing an example for existing big businesses to take a look at and then maybe consider how they're doing their business. But at the same time, do you ever think about the effect that these businesses may have on governments too in terms of leading the way and then inspiring governments to take a closer look and change some of those important legislations? Absolutely. And in our grand vision, it is to make Australia a world leader in these ocean solutions. And that's probably one of the things that really made me realise that Nick was the right guy to go on this journey with, is we've reflected on just how we're the same age, we have all travelled the world. You used to feel so much pride as being this, you know, bronzed Australian. The salt water was in our veins and we were revered for how we treated the ocean. We had the Great Barrier Reef. We were this, we were that. And the last few years, we've just been slipping down the freaking scales as a nation because we've been so abhorrent on our action on climate. So why, with Australia having so much diversity in the ocean landscape, so many incredible institutions and people who understand the ocean, we study our ocean really, really well. We have been coming up with some of these solutions, but quite often they've just been in laboratories and institutions, they've never really looked at the commercialization piece. So we are super fired up to say, okay, it's all well and good. Keep doing that. Give more money to these institutions and all these scientists, but let's look at how we can commercialize it and take it to the world. Let's put Australia on the map. So that's a really important Mm, focus for us. We can be leaders in this, both on land and in the ocean. And we have a unique position with, as you say, all of the knowledge and how developed we are, our population size, like we're set up to lead in many ways. Who do you think is currently leading, if you were to look at countries around the world, who is sort of very much strides out in front of everyone else? In our specific ocean innovation space, Norway would probably be the leader. So we've got a good partnership with an accelerator over there called Catapult Ocean, and they're really well supported by... I suppose, the offshore industry. So, you know, Norway has a huge offshore oil and gas shipping and fisheries. So a lot of that money then swirls around and becomes available. In Australia, you know, our blue economy is significant, but it's still a long way to go. Yeah, and I guess back to that earlier point, you know, what we'd love to imagine is that as this Australian blue economy emerges and we start to see the investment seeping in and the profits being rewarded, then we can start to reduce our dependency on just selling our natural resources like we currently do. The mining and the gas and coal is the industries that are propping up so many communities and therefore the government coffers. How do we diversify that around these regenerative projects? So there's clearly no doubt that we need business to change, we need the government to change. And as you alluded to early on, a lot of that is where the big, big changes will occur. But I'm sure you also get asked at an individual level, if you were to give just a couple of tips for the average person who says, you know what, I want to make some personal impact to the ocean as part of their lifestyle, whatever aspect of their lifestyle, what what are those couple of tips that you would usually give? Yeah, I think in the context of our conversation today, it would definitely be around seafood. You know, we just need to have a good, hard look at ourselves when it comes to the relationship we have with seafood as a nation. And that will therefore influence our friends and neighbours in other parts of the world as well. But more simply, I think it comes down to just realising that every dollar you spend is, is a vote for what you believe in. And that transcends so many parts of our lives. What you invest in is what you sort of believe in. So follow the path a little bit further. Don't just look at that little globe, that little halo bubble around the products or the service you're buying. Think about the consequences on either side of that because you know, it stems back to something I've always been spruiking for years about being a conscious consumer. It doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. It doesn't mean you've got to be precious about it, but just give yourself a chance to think about the consequences. And that in itself is a remarkable achievement. Well said. Now, last one before I let you go here today. 
I'm wondering your conversations with Nick, perhaps behind closed doors, you started at Take 3 on the plastic side of things. Now you're looking at the business and the innovations. When the cameras are off, and perhaps this is not a, a great place to ask this question because the cameras are on, <laughs> uh, but when the cameras are off and or when you're having a conversation with Nick and you're sort of trying to balance the excitement of the solutions and then all of the problems that we see currently with the ocean, where do you land? How hopeful are you? How optimistic are you that there is a path that we will and can follow to get out of this position? Yeah, a couple of things that come up for me on that you know, humans are just incredibly resilient and innovative and always have been. So I'm sure if we could go back through the chronicles of time over millennia or even millions of years, we would have just seen all sorts of adverse situations that humans faced. And maybe it's right when you're about to hit the wall that you do something remarkable and you change. So I'm frustrated with obviously with COVID, this incredible response from governments around the world where they just listened to the science and did what the scientists said. And I just, I question what it is about our species with the climate crisis or destroying the ocean that we can't, we can't look forward. Like we just, it seems impossible. I think it's like chronic disease, right? It's sometimes it takes the heart attack to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to see the effect that a certain food is having on your body when what we're talking about is health 20, 30 years down the line. And I see climate change as like the chronic disease of the planet, hard to connect with. So is there a cataclysmic event that is required to have humans shuffle at enough pace? Or do we have enough urgency, enough pain on the horizon that people will act fast enough? I think the the sad truth there is that that's already happened to some communities and people. We are again in a really privileged place, full of you know people and uh, influential figures who can just push away this sense that we are even in a climate crisis. But for some people, that's just not the case. So, you know, I worry then that it is the very top of the tree, the one percent, that are just going to keep on la 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 la. Blinkers are on. Nothing's fucked here. You know. So yeah, that's a problem. And to the second point to your question is just this sort of the Zen side of me is just like, well, you know, Homo sapiens, just one of the many million of beautiful species that share this pale blue marble and uh, say la vie. If they were stupid enough to do what they've just done in the last few hundred years, then let the hopefully sharks reign supreme. That's what, that's what I come <laughs> back to. And there's peace in that, but also I don't want that to be what causes us to sort of rest on our laurels. So, you know, the, what I love about what you're doing is it's not just armchair commentary. You're rolling up your sleeves, you're getting the work done. And, you know, we can just all hope that with these solutions will come the results that we need. Yeah. And another sort of Zen perspective on that is just like, you know, I've only got a... 80, 90 year stint on this little marble if I so choose to engage in it for that long and um, have the privilege to. So why the devil wouldn't you just want to do some good stuff for the sake of your species and everyone else when you've got the means to do it? I think that's a beautiful way to wrap this one up. If uh, anyone from the community would like to connect with you on the socials, continue this conversation or inquire about Ocean Impact, get involved, look at the pitch fest, what is the best way for them to do so. Yep. So I'm Tim Silverwood across the socials and um, search away and then Ocean Impact Organization. You should find it or it's ocean-impact.org and Ocean Impact Org on the old socials. Thank you, brother. I look forward to having you back on and then learning about some of these startups and hearing about the impact they're making. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the next, you know, maybe it's three years more time what, um, what we've been able to achieve. Absolutely. Stay tuned. There we go. Always enjoy chatting with Tim. If you also enjoyed today's episode, please do connect with Tim on the socials. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Tim Silverwood. Before I let you go today, I am regularly asked about supplements. The main ones I recommend thinking about supplementing for anyone following a plant-based diet, be it predominant or exclusive, are B12, vitamin D, omega-3s, and iodine. If you've got my book, you can read about these in part three in plenty of detail. For those wanting to get these from a supplement, 
The one that I recommend is Nutrikind's Essential 8, which you can purchase from Nutrikind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. I formulated this for a Sydney company, so rest assured the input amounts are right. And on top of those four nutrients that I just mentioned, the Essential 8 also contains iron, selenium, zinc, and a small amount of calcium to complement your diet. I thought I would tack that to the end of this episode because it's a question that I get on the emails almost every single day. Okay, time to land this plane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me all the way to the end here. I appreciate you and I look forward to doing it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.